going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends, and a happy Tuesday, one and all. Hope all is well with you and yours. Today's program, all kinds of fun. We're going to go city politics. Yesterday, we were kind of bombarded by everything happening on Parliament Hill. And so far, everybody laying pretty low. I may or may not have said that would probably be the smart thing to do if I were Justin Trudeau instead of, hey, let's talk about our mission to the moon and let's talk climate change and all. No, stop it. Be quiet for a minute. Just, you know, calm down a little bit and try to figure out this crisis management thing. I had to laugh a little bit seeing a few uh, tweets and memes coming out and the uh, socks. Everybody talking about the socks and how they're unraveling. But this is all just the calm before the storm. Tomorrow, Gerald Butts taking the stage. What will he say? There's those who think that he might very well be trying to back his longtime friend. I also kind of like a good conspiracy. Part of me likes chaos. Can you imagine if he just flipped Michael Cohen-esque and decided to go against his friend and say, you know what? It was all Justin. He said everything. Then all of a sudden, who's fake news now? So yeah, we'll be probably watching that. We'll uh, we'll endeavor to keep you updated through the course of the day tomorrow. You'll want to stay tuned to 770 CHQR because you, I know we are going to be diving into that one through the course of the show and through the course of the day. On other topics of the day here on Calgary Today, we're going to open things up talking about the field house. It is part of that massive decision by city council yesterday that, hey, we're going to do our best to fund these major projects and to work with the respective groups to make sure they happen. Well, the field house, I would argue, is probably one of the biggest projects that I can't believe we don't have one yet. What's Edmonton have? Three? And I know we're not supposed to be in a competition. But all you need to do is look outside over the last few hours, a few days, a few weeks, and you go, it's pretty hard to train for summer sports when you're trapped in an ice chute for months at a time. And so Murray Sigler from Sport Canada, uh, Sport Calgary will join us in just a couple of minutes to dive more into council's decision and what he envisions out of this field house. We'll also talk kids and good nutrition, a new C.D. Howe Institute report diving into whether or not the feds need to make more of an effort to mandate some kind of affordable breakfast program across the board, across the country. Because right now, provinces are doing it kind of piecemeal. In a shocking development, I think. The answer is no. We'll chat uh, a little bit about that with Abby Sullivan, one of the co-authors of the report, after 4 o'clock. We'll also dive into former U.S. President Barack Obama's visit to Calgary. Adam Toy was in uh, the crowd and will join us to give us a little bit of a feel for the room because sometimes it's, I know a lot of people will say, oh, who cares about that guy? But at the same time, it was still a pretty big crowd on hand. It's not to say that everybody was there cheering for him. So I'm kind of curious to see if there is just more of a curiosity standpoint, the rock star status that, President seemed to have. Again, same thing happened with George W. not too long ago. 
He was through town, same kind of idea. I don't believe it was as big. It wasn't at the Dome, but it was still one of those things. There's going to be a peaking of interests when that happens. So we'll chat with Adam about what he saw, what he heard. Also, this whole UCP filming an NDP premier's office staffer walking into a room with Prab Gill, grabbing a lot of headlines on social media, a lot of people questioning, well, who's filming? Why are they filming? Jason Nixon of the UCP was asked asked a few questions about that, so we'll dive into that one as well. And a re- right near the end of the show today, we'll talk about a really cool program uh, or initiative that a young American is undertaking in speaking with World War II veterans and documenting those conversations so that future generations can actually chat with them. But we will uh, dive into the discussion surrounding uh, the field house in just a second. But before we get to that, let's go to traffic. All right, we, we've heard the stories through the course of the day today about Calgary Council giving the thumbs up to the new framework to not only reignite talks with the flames as part of a marathon session at City Hall to get a new arena built, but it also approved a funding strategy for the arena and three other major capital projects, the BMO Center, uh, the new field house and upgrades to Arts Commons. Now, the field house has been on the books for a long, long while now. Joining us to talk a little bit more about the reaction is Murray Sigler from Sport Calgary. Murray, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, my pleasure. Talk about your reaction after seeing council and what it decided on yesterday when it comes to field house and, and the, the, the project that seems to have been uh, on the radar for quite some time. We applaud City Council for showing some leadership and some vision and deciding to proceed uh, with the Fieldhouse decision. How much is this needed? This is just so greatly needed, and it's way overdue. Uh, it's, uh, there's been demand studies done year after year for decades showing that there'd be great public use for play, for sport, activities of all type, for a, for a multi-sport field house for Calgary. Because we don't have one, a lot of people are denied the, act, the opportunity to take part in sporting activities. And this isn't only high, high levels of competition, elite, elite athletic competitions. We're talking play and activities and courts and, and gymnasia time and, and, and in the fields. So it's multi-use is to encourage high level of use by the whole community. And at the same time, it allows Calgary to host some major, major events that uh, we've been missing out on for years. So the, every demand study done for a number of years through the sport community, uh, through tourism and otherwise, has shown this is the top priority for our sport community, athletic, uh, the amateur sport community in the city. And finally, the city council has decided to fund it. When you look outside over the last few weeks, it probably gives a lot more credence to the idea of having a field house as well, because I think that's maybe one of the big deterrents for a lot of our young athletes is that, hey, if you've got an outside sport, if you've got an inkling for an outside sport, you've only got a certain amount of time to be able to train and do the things you need to do because you can't do it outside sometimes. Absolutely, Joe. That's one of the drivers for it is our, is our, is our climate, so that on a year-round basis, people will be able to play and train and we'll have events and they won't always have to go up to Edmonton for competition, so they won't just miss out on the opportunities to develop. Uh, we won't have people having to tra- practice field and uh, 
sports, whether it's soccer or football or even baseball, inside gymnasiums in the winter because they just don't serve the same purpose as a, as a field house. Uh, and uh, we believe that that broad usage, whether it's by individual users, by sport clubs, by events, by the university, even by groups like the Calgary Stampeders Football Club who discovered the problem when they went to get ready for the Great Cup game mm-hmm. last year in Edmonton. They, they were so appreciated of, of practicing indoors. Well, we need indoors with our climate. So it's maybe a happy coincidence in a way that we've had this extensive cold streak uh, of near record proportions just at the same time council uh, needed to, was prepared to address the field house question uh, at this time. And uh, we're just delighted to get the funding and we're hoping that the next stages of community consultation on a broad basis will help develop the final specs you asked earlier a bit about kind of the, the specs make quite a difference of what mm-hmm. goes into it. So the, the next stages we hope will engage, we'll, we'll call for some public engagement on a very strong basis to determine what the seating should be for it, uh, what the amenities should be in it, what sports are added, and also, of course, how it will be operated. There's a long, long range of operating models because we also really support the the, 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 the real world that, that has to make good financial sense and fiscal sense for the city of Calgary and all taxpayers. For sure, there has to be broad uses. And for sure, there's the social benefit of sport. And for sure, there's the benefits of play and event, tourism and so on from sport events. But it also has to make solid uh, financial sense for the city of Calgary. Yeah, and that's going to be one of the things, too, I think that a lot of people are are cringing at, I guess, is because they look at it and go, it's going to have a big price tag. And then the economic uh, conditions we're in, I think a lot of people have that concern. And so how important in your eyes is it going to be for all stakeholders, whether it's private industry, whether it's the city, the province, uh, you know, the chamber, everybody needs to get on board and be, uh, be willing to bring different ideas to the table to be able to uh, afford this and make it reasonable and make sure that we, we don't just sit here five years from now and go, we had this idea, but we're going to kick it down the, the field just a little while longer. No, we, 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 we urge them to have that discussion. We believe that is, in fact, essential. And I also am quite confident that not, nothing simple, of course, and the next steps are kind of the real fun in a way because everybody has to delve into all the financial conditions and frameworks that will have to be satisfied in order for actual construction to start on, on the field house. But I, I believe, in a way, the field house, and each one of the projects is distinct, and each one has a benefit for the community. But in a way, the field house has some distinguishing elements. First, it's not inside the CRL zone, the commercial revitalization zone mm-hmm. that the other projects are. So the funding sources are kind of are more direct. We can look to... Um, the value of the land. The university district is a key economic zone for the city of Calgary, as is Victoria Park and East Village, as is the airport and others. But the university district is a key economic zone. But differentiator is it's actually happening now. There's actual development going on. Like it's, it's not 30 or 40 years down the road. The development and the demand right now is happening in the university district. So that opportunity is a good one. I think the private sector will get involved. That's been the experience with 
a lot of the other major investments and in recreation complexes that have been that the city has invested in in recent years that are say operated by the YMCA at the new at the new Seton or or Saddle Ridge uh, Quarry Park facilities where the private sector has come forward and participated. Uh, I think that for sure will be the case that at this location at Foothills Park because it is proximate to the university and it will have such high usage that it'll be an attractive. Uh, place for participation by the private sector. And the test of that in other communities holds bears, bears water. Like if you look in Ottawa, where at Lansdowne Park area, where they looked around the old football stadium there, and the whole area around it was developed with other sport facilities and with, with residential development and so on, that it certainly are cases where, where it happens successfully. And I think it's a prime location. Outside of a CRL, we can look for a it's, everything's complicated, but I think there'll be a strong uh, funding potential for this one. And we may be all surprised to find that not only the, will the field house be the least expensive of, of all these very large projects, because I think the costs have to be looked at, too, when we do the review, and they should come in less, I'd hope, than what was proposed as part of the Olympic bid, because there won't be an ice plant attached to it, for example, mm-hmm. and the final specs will have to be done, but it'll be less capital cost. I, I truly am confident that there will be private sector participation, both by way of anchor tenants, sponsorships, and probably co-development opportunities. And what a great time. There's all kinds of private developers looking for work in this city right now, and uh, and they'd love to be part of the, a university zone uh, development, we, where we believe. But the test of that is going to be as we as it proceeds through the next through the next steps. And those next steps will probably take on a very fast track, I'd guess, would be two years of planning, extensive consultation, here getting inputs, making sure all the fiscal tests are met, that there is a return on the investment in a tangible way, as well as for the social benefit ways of it. And one of the big tests, of course, from a social benefit will be those hundreds of thousand Calgarians that are going to be users of it, that have identified as something they, they want to uh, to, to have for their own use and for the use of their families. And it's not for a professional sports team, although they will be anchor tenants and users in many ways. For example, the Stampeders, it's really for amateur sport and various sport organizations. I don't think it gets any more grassroots than the, than the case for, for the field house being driven by the community. It's, it's happened over so such a long period of time, but it's been a great persistence by they are the, the Calgary Multisport Fieldhouse Society individuals there that have led the way over the years and mm-hmm. had a dream, and it's 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 quite. That's why we're excited and so applaud the the city for this decision because it's long overdue. How important is it to make sure that we have a game plan in place to replace them, or do we even replace them? Absolutely, there has to be one of the early starting points. Uh, for, for the for the work done for for the advisory committee will be an overall site plan for the about a thousand acre site at Foothills Athletic Park, showing putting a pin down where the standalone field house will be the standalone multi sport field house will be, uh, so that that can be cited and work can go at that. But at the same time, that has to be coordinated with with partners such as the University of Calgary, who who own a good part of the site and who, who, the, the university district overall to make sure it's compatible with that plan and as, a, as it will be sport and recreational use. So we have to look at aquatic facility. We have to 
there has to be a sub, subsequent decision of what happens with a football stadium, what happens with McMahon Stadium, and what do we need for a football stadium within the, within the site. Baseball park again; it's not been used for quite a few years as a football uh, as a baseball stadium, Foothill Stadium, but there's a bit of history there too and there's a desire maybe to rekindle that so we have to have a coordinated site and with father david bauer it's been kept modern and up to date but ultimately there'll be a need for replacement there so there has to be a site plan and a long-term plan and then i i I believe that the start point for that whole plan can 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 readily be the foot the the foothills park field house Believe it or not, mm-hmm. the Foothills Park multi-sport fieldhouse can be the starting point as an anchor for a broader sport recreation anchor within an overall well-planned, high-demand uh, university district economic zone for the city. And uh, like who in this city, as parents or grandparents or whatever, don't want their kids going to university? Who do not want their kids to uh, get careers and stay in our city? Who do not believe in the power of amateur sport? Um, there's probably some people that don't. I'd love to have a discussion around that separate <laughs> point at, at any point in time because there's so many examples of sport and a broad definition of it, meaning play and activity is being essential for 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 not just physical health and social health, but also the economic health of a, of a community. So that's how we connect all the dots, and that's why it's it's uh, we really applaud council uh, from the mayor, all the individual councils who who were behind the the, the the decision to move ahead with funding uh, for their vision and and, take, and taking the bull by the horns finally and doing that. And it won't bother us that Edmonton is planning their fourth or fifth field house because when our first one's going to be one that's going to put Edmonton's to shame. That's, <laughs> that's not meant in a way to put down Edmonton. It's a way to be proud of Calgary when we do stuff, we do it well, and we're, we have a lot of best practices when it comes to... Uh, to our investment in sport infrastructure, and that's this is going to be another example of it. So mm-hmm. when we do it, let's do it well. Something that the community will be proud of, and uh, and so be it. Will be the last one, but we'll be, when it's ready, say it's five years from now, we'll all be really proud of it, and we'll all be involved with 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 using it. Absolutely, Murray. I do appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to um, to talk with you again anytime you like. For sure. Murray Sigler, the executive director and CEO of Sport Calgary, is city council giving a little bit of a push in the right direction on that field house. Again, that's only been on the books for, I don't know, a decade or so. Man, can't wait for that to, to finally see the light of day. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Brand new report shows school food programs should put needy students first in line but it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to come from the federal government. Abby Sullivan helped co-author this report from the C.D. Howe Institute, and she now joins us. Abby, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. No problem. Thank you for having me. What is maybe one of your big takeaways when you looked at the idea of uh, school nutrition programs and those uh, those programs that are being used to uh, help some of the at-risk youth that we have in our communities? Yeah, so we looked at uh, the idea of school nutrition programs in a general sense of the um, impact it has on health indicators and performance outcomes in schools. And we also looked at the 
program in terms of scaling it and whether it should be kept provincially or municipally um, or if it should go to a federal program. And our biggest takeaways, I think, right now are that these programs have the most clear benefits when they're targeted towards uh, the most at-risk children, and those are usually in areas where there's a higher percentage of families on social assistance programs or lower incomes because the benefits are quite clear. No one would ever argue that breakfast doesn't have positive impacts on children who are undernourished. So in that case, um, before they try and scale them any larger, they definitely need to be targeted towards those kids that really need the food out of the program itself. I suppose a big takeaway, too, is the fact that you can't have a one-size-fits-all mentality when it comes to these because every school and every school board and every province and every city is going to be different. Yes, exactly. So that was actually our our biggest thing uh, coming out of it. We weren't even sure what the outcome we were going to find was when we looked at uh, raw data. And it was indeed that it's not a one-size-fits-all. This is a very complex issue. And I think school nutrition programs are finding those problems and they're hitting those breaks when they're trying to be scaled too wide. And it needs to be left open. It needs to be community-based or community-led because there's too many differences across communities in urban centers versus northern regions. And there's just Canada's too, um, too different in terms of different needs, whether that be nutritional requirements or access to resources. So they need to be able to be tailored towards specific communities. When it comes to the programs that are already in place, are there any that are standing above the rest? Are they are there any models right now that you see that go, you know what, this is this is the right path that uh, that is being taken right now? Yeah, well, I mean, we've looked at Ontario, Nova Scotia, and Alberta, for starters. They were the three provinces that kind of took their own step to doing provincial, whether that be provincial programs or provincial guidelines. Um, so they're definitely leading in the sense that they've taken a step towards those topics. Um, There's still a lot of room (laughs) for improvement, and that's things in terms of funding, guidelines. They need to be aligned, and that will be, in going forward, I think that's going to be a role that needs to be continuously discussed within specific areas and whether the federal government is going to get involved in just in terms of helping create those guidelines, that's one thing, but they need to be able to be tailored toward certain areas. And I think right now those provinces that have the programs, I guess, would be ahead because they're bringing up that to- uh, the topic. And going forward, they just need to keep focusing on those areas in lower uh, income with higher social assistance programs because those are the ones who need the program the most right now. I suppose that's a big part of it, too, and you segued well into my my next question, which is keeping the dialogue going and having those conversations and figuring out uh, how best to serve each community separately instead of waiting for some senior level of government to try to piecemeal something together. Yes, exactly. So I know that in the provincial discussion, a lot of them were calling for the federal government to step up, but looking at some of the data, there's there's no clear evidence yet that that's even going to have a positive impact on the overall community because right now it's those children that are undernourished or struggling with uh, food security that do need the programs and that might not be the role of a federal government then at that point it needs to be uh, those communities and municipal governments that kind of have more of a role in those own areas so I think right now we can't be relying or we can't be waiting for um, an overarching kind of higher power to take a step forward. It needs to be continuing what we're doing. There's smaller programs, there's charities and organizations that are focusing on that. And the t- discussion just needs to keep coming back to uh, the children and communities who need it. 
Do you have any recommendations for those who are already, you know, you mentioned Alberta, uh, already kind of starting the processes, but anything that uh, they should take away from your report? Yeah, so I think some of our biggest takeaways were just that um, scaling up a nutrition program right now to meet kind of federal standardized programs, um, it's not ready for that yet. This topic is we haven't found enough evidence. There's not enough impact on an overarching federal program. So I think going forward, the programs, they just need to remain targeted at the most at-risk children. That being said, our biggest kind of block we found in some of these programs is the issue of uh, stigma, being a part of such a program. So we're essentially recommending that these programs need to remain targeted at those specific communities and areas that need it the most. But then within those areas, it needs to be universally available to all children so that there's no stigma involved in being a part of such a program and that we're able to kind of help everyone who needs it within those areas. How do you get over that stigma aspect of things? Is that something that you have to get the parents involved in the conversation or or what's the the best route in in making that all uh, sort of work? Yeah, so we found that um, there is across a lot of literature because there's not enough actual statistical evidence of any real impact. The literature focused more on issues with the programs and stigma was a huge one. A lot of children don't want to be involved in such a thing because of the stigma that comes with it. So the biggest things are just that within the targeted areas that these programs are being offered, it has to be offered universally. Um, So we're not saying universal across the entire country, but universally within those smaller populations so that the kids feel comfortable, no one is singled out. Parents do get involved. It depends how the program is um, tailored, but parents' involvement and volunteers from teachers and the community are definitely a key aspect. And we also found that the parents need to be involved, too, in the sense that they need to want these programs to happen because um, in the study you'll also see that there was an issue with some parents didn't want their children to be a part of it. And then in that case, the money is going to something that the food's getting thrown out at the end of the day. So it needs to be a full-on kind of community involvement, which is why it's going to be best received in areas that need these programs. Yeah, and that was going to be my next point. My last point is how do you make sure that you're not? we don't have governments and whether it be uh, a federal government plan down the road or provincial po- uh, plans now is make sure that you're not throwing money down the drain and that you're not just throwing money at a problem that may or may not even exist within a certain school. Exactly. So that's definitely the topic. I think um, going into this, we are very curious to look at some, we did some analysis of our own with uh, data from the Toronto District School Board just to kind of see whether there was enough to say it should be, you know, funded and um, scaled up to that level, but there's not enough evidence to say that right now. So uh, in that case, we don't want to be recommending to be throwing money at something that still has a lot of room to grow. And, you know, we've realized that scaling it up to um, kind of a country level when it's not, if it's not going to be meeting the nutritional standards or uh, there's going to be operational challenges, then it could be detrimental because it could be wasting money on something that's not working. So I think the best way to avoid that problem is just to continue targeting those areas that need it because you're going to see benefit from those because um, there's always going to be a positive effect from eating breakfast rather than not. So in areas where there's undernourished populations, it's not going to be a waste of money giving food to those um, kind of targeted schools and regions, but it's not ready to be scaled federal yet because then you will run into a cost-efficient issue.
issue. Yeah, and I know that it's going to be a topic of conversation here at a provincial level. We do have an election campaign uh, in the not-too-distant future as well here in Alberta. And as you mentioned, we're, we're in the beginning stages at the very least. It was something that was a platform for the NDP back in 2015. So uh, I'm sure that'll be something that'll be talked about in education circles for sure. Uh, Abby, thank you so much for the insight into your report today. No problem. Thank you for having me. One of my very first shows that I did here on Calgary today, I made mention of, I I played back-to-back three minutes of the uh, Donald Trump-Justin Trudeau news conference, where it was the the Q&A, the first three minutes, versus the first three minutes of the Q&A of Stephen Harper and Barack Obama together. And the contradiction was insane. And so whether you like the politician or not, the fact that they're very good orators can sometimes make or break a politician. And so that, I assume, is a big part of why people were lined up to get in to see Barack Obama speak here in Calgary today. One of those people who was there to cover it was our own Adam Toy. Adam, thanks for joining us this afternoon. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Give us a sense of the room. What did it, uh, I mean, it's a big room. It's the dome after all. But <laughs> yeah. uh, was the crowd receptive to him? Was, I mean, in some cases you hear boos and that kind of thing. Did we get that sense or was it a pretty enthusiastic crowd? It was a very enthusiastic crowd. So I took the train from uh, this radio station here on 17th Avenue, uh, down th- through downtown to uh, to the Saddle Dome, and downtown picked up a whole bunch of people. They were talking about Obama, and everybody seemed excited on the train to to see Obama. And then it, you know, in the lineups, everybody was very calm, lots of smiles, and very excited to see this uh, former president who has a bit of celebrity status, dis- uh, despite. Uh, what side of the aisle you you choose to stand on. And even when Obama decided to take on oil and gas in some of his comments, he wasn't met with booze, right? Uh, which is a fascinating thing because that's been the number one thing that's come up on our text line is, why are you guys shilling for Obama? And my my point is, is we sent a reporter, much like we did with George W. Bush when mm-hmm. he came through. So it's our job to report what people are talking about. And so uh, from that standpoint, when you were go afterwards, as you were walking out of the building, what were people talking about following his uh, Q and A and his his speech? Uh, a lot of people were just uh, talking about how uh, it was interesting to hear uh, Obama's perspective on um, things like oil and gas, things like his leadership structure, things like the fact that he actively sought out perspectives on many sides of the of the issue uh of for whatever issue he had like one quote that he said here uh and i'll just need to pull bring it up here he said that uh if you want to get something done about climate change you can't just be talking with the person who's driving a prius and eating quinoa you have to talk to the guy who's driving it who's got a pickup and has to drive 30 miles to his job and as a consequence the price of gas is relevant to him so, I mean, and, and another thing that he said is he, he, he recognized that oil and gas powers, uh, powered the industrial revolution uh, and powers Canada's and U.S. economy. But then he also spoke to the need of uh, the, 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 the science out there that says that the earth is warming and that we need to find alternate energy solutions 
to, uh, to, to, to kind of transition off of oil and gas. He also had an interesting point that he believes that if you take some of these science and engineering efforts that are used in oil and gas to extract some of those resources and put that into uh, ways to either take carbon out of the uh, atmosphere or to uh, find all other energy sources, that uh, those could be as uh, as potentially as profitable, but better for the earth and better for the earth in uh, that we are going to be handing over to our children or grandchildren, etc. That is uh, a little bit of an overview. If you want more on it, head to 770chqr.ca. We'll also have a full story on the global news at six. And of course, throughout the news with uh, Haley throughout the course of this afternoon. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for uh, giving us a little bit of insight today. My pleasure. Calgary Today on 770chqr. Yesterday, as we were awaiting Justin Trudeau to speak, I kind of had a good giggle about party politics and the theater of politics and how every party is the same that way and setting up signs and gleeful supporters willing to clap every time they're prompted to do so. Doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of happiness going around the Alberta legislature lately and with I probably with good reason. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people talking about the fact that hey, you know what we're we're in an election campaign. As much as the writ hasn't been dropped by any stretchy imagination, it is still a lot of politicking going on. And so it was, it was fascinating this uh, yesterday morning to hear Jason Kenney come out and say, "Okay, here's our plan for corporate taxes." Rolls out this plan, and you think, "Okay, there's." The hope, that's the hope that the headline is going to be as we head into the evening. And yet, not a few hours later, the official Twitter account for the office of Jason Kenney, leader of the United Conservatives and Alberta's official opposition at Unite Alberta, tweets out this black and white video that's put into slow motion for dramatic effect. It's only, uh, let's see, 51 seconds long with the, quote, wonder why Premier Notley's senior advisor, Jeremy Nolays, was busy meeting with independent MLA Prab Gill in the latter's office this afternoon. Is the NDP caucus about to gain a new MLA? Not sure if aligning with the NDP is a good move in Calgary, though, dot, dot, dot. Sparked a little bit of commentary, a lot of questions being asked Clearly about two different sides of it, though. One being, yeah, why are they meeting? What's going on here? Could there be some leaks happening? On the flip side, the other question being, why are we, why do we have hidden camera footage of these? Who's hiding cameras? Why would you even bother with that? Which, again, begs the question in my head that I asked last night and I will ask on air as well. Is Jason Kenney has been running on this idea of, hey, we are going to be the bigger party. We are going to take the high road in everything. And yet his message seems to be subversed by what his Twitter account for the 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 official uh, Twitter account for his office is doing. So questions were asked of Jason Nixon today. What's going on here? I mean, I wasn't the, the individual filming of the video. The video was filmed in a common area that's between the United Conservative uh, Party offices and Mr. Gill's office. So it was in a public spot. 
Um, you know, frankly, the NDP have uh, have filmed our, us before in the past. I remember uh, having to be in a press conference and receiving pictures of Mr. Kenny doing interviews outside the ledge building where they indicated that some staff uh, should not have been there, even though it turned out that was wrong. Uh, just recently, the NDP have taped and put out tapes of Mr. Kenny speaking at uh, uh, at events. The reality is, uh, in, in politics, uh, us we're on all the time, and we have to be aware that we could be being filmed anywhere that we go. Sure, but what about the response to the claim that this amounts to intimidation? I don't think there's any intention to intimidate anybody at all. Uh, the question that I believe is being asked by the United Conservative Party is, again, why the Premier of Senior Staff meeting with a now a disgraced uh, politician who was caught stuffing ballot boxes? So is this a tactic that we can expect in the campaign, sort of cert, uh, you know, videotaping of, uh, of opponents? Well, again, the NDP have, uh, are already doing that tactic. They uh, they videotape and uh, record uh, uh, MLAs for my uh, caucus all the time. Uh, it's already a common tactic that uh, you know. Just the reality is, when you're on, you could be uh, when you're at work, you will be recorded. We give speeches. That's and people uh, people are interested in what we have to say. Okay, hold on a second. It's one thing to be uh, no. Either way, it's not right. But that being said, there's a difference between. Filming somebody and then filming it and doing it in that way, like pre-produced, it's it just bizarre to me. I don't understand it. And it, part of me, I'll get to a reaction in a second, but there's one other thing, one other answer Jason Nixon gave that made me scratch my head a little bit. Well, I've, no, that's not, it's not typical for the government to send over senior officials from the premier's office to meet with MLAs to talk about issues inside their constituency. Uh, I've been an MLA for a while. I've never had a, a, a member of the premier's office come to my office and talk to me about an issue in my constituency. Uh, on the rare time where you're able to get a meeting about something happening in your constituency with this NDP government, you certainly go to them. They don't come to you. The reality is this is a senior official within the premier's office who is meeting with a disgraced politician and somebody found that interesting and you know it's up to them to explain what that meeting was about the curious part in that answer is i would like to think that albertans would expect more out of both of these parties if over the last few years they don't talk to each other how in the heck are we supposed to get be getting any kind of compromise when they can't even do themselves the the decency to go talk to each other frankly in my mind, based on the answers and the questions and the way that they've been behaving, they should be ashamed of themselves. Be better. That being said, I have to give the win of the day to Derek Fildebrand, who tweets out uh, a little It's exclusive pictures of Tory staffers in other MLA's offices today. And it's a picture of a guy looking through his window wondering if he's getting taped. said, I'm conflicted. This is kind of funny. But at the same time, it's not really funny. When you think about it, what a gong show. Turning our attention to something that I found really fascinating when my dad decided to go and do a bit of a history look at how my grandfather on my mom's side came to Canada. He's Polish. He uh, managed to get into the army being underage, I think he was 15. I think he lied. I know he lied about his age to get in and then managed to get out of the country, move to Canada, brought his family along. And it's just too bad. He died in 1997. And I really wish now having the history uh, love that I have now, I really wish I would have had that opportunity to talk to him at length about the things that he went through. 
Rishi Sharma is doing exactly that, founding a project to record the history of every World War II veteran he could. It's called The Heroes of the Second World War, and Rishi joins us now on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about the heroes of the Second World War. This is uh, this is a really fascinating one, and as a lot of people have probably noticed by now, I'm a big history buff, and so I asked the question right off the bat, why do this? Yeah, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, uh, I've always been interested in World War II. I would watch, you know, movies about the conflict. I would read as many books as I could find on the subject, and uh, when I was in high school, I just started riding my bike to the local retirement home, and I just started to actually meet these heroes face-to-face, and I brought along my video camera, and it was just so neat to be able to talk to these walking, breathing history books, you know? I can ask them anything about the past 100, you know, 20 years practically, and I'll get a first-hand answer as a response. And it was just so interesting that here I am, you know, I think I know everything about the subject because of the things I've seen on TV or what I've read in books. But, you know, when you actually talk to people that were there and that actually experienced it firsthand, it really makes you realize you don't know anything. And so I got addicted to meeting these veterans and um, I just made it my mission to document as many World War II combat veterans as there are. Uh, you know, uh, to preserve not only their combat experiences and the reality of war, but also, you know, to give them an opportunity, a cathartic opportunity, to get these experiences out in the open and off their chest. Because for many of the veterans, um, I'm the first person that they've opened up to in 75 years, practically. And so it's very cathartic for them. Uh, to know that there's someone out there who understands a little bit of what they went through, you know? Yeah, no, and one of the things that I, I take away from just watching some of the videos already is that there's that opportunity where, especially given that we live in the Internet age, is that some of their stories are going to be able to live on forever, whereas those who, who passed, you know, in the in the couple of decades, say, after the war, they didn't get to tell their stories in quite the same way and have them uh, remembered forever in this way. Yeah, absolutely. It really gives the veterans another life, you know? I mean, 200 years from now, all the the veterans, their great-great-great-great-grandchildren are going to be able to see what their great-great-great-great-grandfather looks like, the way he spoke, the way he talked, the way he laughed, the way he cried, his, his, you know, his characteristics, everything that made him him. They're going to be able to see that and feel that practically. And, you know... Just imagine if a Civil War veteran suddenly came up from the grave, all the world's media would be hounding him, begging him to do an interview just for five minutes of his time. They'd be using the nicest cameras, the fanciest equipment. And, you know, what boggles my mind is here we are. We have that opportunity with the World War II veterans who are arguably way cooler than any Civil War veteran, <laughs> you know. And, and, and people, are, it seems, they're more concerned about, you know, what the Kardashians are wearing than what the older man down the street actually went through, you know, the hell that he had to experience. And so it just, it's crazy to me that we have all this technology and we can completely document this generation, this generation, I might add that every single day of their lives has been about other people, whether it was growing up in the great depression, 
be quitting school at an early age to put food on the table for their family or joining the service or changing their birth certificate just to get into the service. Today, I interviewed a Marine here in the States who tried to join at 16 years old, got caught for being underage, and then then, uh, got his mother's signature when he was 17 and then went off to fight in some of the most brutal combat on the island of Okinawa. You know, and he was willing to put himself in that position just so that other people wouldn't have to. And, you know, these veterans, they come home after the war, after four or five years of the worst combat in the history of humanity, and they're just told to man up and move on. And that's what they did, you know. I mean, all they wanted were, were the, was their old jobs back, and they wanted to raise a family. It wasn't about, you know, look how brave we are, look how amazing we are. We saved the world from evil tyrants like Tojo and Hitler. You know, it was just about we did what we had to do, and let's move on. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the same generation that put man on the moon, you know. And it's like every single day of their lives has been about what they can do for other people. And I'm sure anyone that has any relation or has any relationship with a Second World War veteran can attest to this nature. It's a uniform thing. Uh, it's just something about them. And hopefully through these interviews, it will also be passed on or will be, you know, will be documented so that future generations can, can learn from that mold. Any stories that really stick out to you? They're all really amazing in their own ways. But, I mean, some really crazy interviews that I, I can recall off the top of my head is I've interviewed uh, a twin brother. Um, in the United States, there's a story about the Sullivan brothers, which were five brothers on a naval ship, on the same naval ship. Um, and they all wanted to be on the same ship because they were very close brothers. And the ship sank, and all five of the brothers were killed. And after that happened... Uh, the military uh, passed an order that no brothers or relations would be in the same outfit in combat. Mm-hmm. Now, I interviewed one brother, uh, one man, named, I interviewed one man named James Krebs. And he, and he has a twin brother named Jack, and they were inseparable, practically, you know, and, but they joined the service after the Sullivan brother order had been already passed and so they were separated but they were miserable so their mother wrote a letter to the white house and i've seen the letter i mean the story is all true uh, asking that her boys please be put back together and i don't know if fdr actually saw the letter but uh someone from the white house made a decision and the twin brothers were reunited and they went to combat in the same outfit and they actually became a very fearless duo. I called them the dynamic duo because the two of them were both awarded the Silver Star, which is the third highest award for valor, for knocking out. They, they were a bazooka team, and they knocked out four German tanks, four German mortar positions, and they knocked out five machine gun nests all by themselves. Wow. And, and uh, But a week after that incident, they were running through a field, and they became they uh, got under machine gun fire, um, and uh, Jack was hit right next to his twin brother uh, James. You know the, the veteran who I interviewed, mm-hmm. and I mean, like I said, they were inseparable. And imagine what it's like to see your twin brother getting hit right next to you. 
but Jack was still alive. And so James went there uh, to try to help him to see if he could give him any first aid. And they're Catholic, and, and uh, James was giving Jack his last rites because it seemed that he was dying. But before he could finish, a sniper shot and killed uh, Jack. He shot him right in the neck, right as uh, James was providing last rites. And, and the thing is, I mean, the really interesting thing about that story is uh, James is a very, very religious man to the point where he has a prayer list where there's a list of people that he prays for every day and that he wishes nothing but the best for them. And he had told me that after his twin brother died, literally in his arms, um, he had lost his religion. And he was very despondent. You know, he hated everyone and everything. And and he just couldn't function anymore. But the fact is, he moved on, I guess, and he got over it and he overcame that. What I mean, some for what for some people is, and um, you know, uh, a huge barrier. You know, seeing your twin brother getting killed right next to you. Mm-hmm. You know, your best friend, your everything. Uh, but he was able to move on, and, and he's been, you know, like a shining light in his community. And he's the most friendly person you'll ever meet, and you would never think he has that history. Very interesting story, and a lot of them can be found uh, on your website there, Rishi. It is called heroesofthesecondworldwar.org. If you know someone who might be interested in telling their story, head to that website and get in touch with Rishi. Rishi, thanks so much for the time today. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today.